The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we are talking about herring. Yes, herring of yesterday and herring of today and herring of tomorrow. My guests are Matt McKenzie historian and author of Clearing the Coastline, the 19th Century Ecological and Cultural Transformations of Cape Cod. Hi, Matt. Good afternoon, Rob. My other guest uh, is a Cape Codder himself. Patrick Paquette is a recreational fishing community organizer and a three-time past president of Massachusetts Striped Bass Fishermen. Hello, Patrick. How you doing, Rob? Did I get your titles right? Yes, you did. Well, I understand that uh, you need to... I want to thank you for stepping off the ocean to take the time to speak with us. And I hear you've got to head back to uh, take some steamers before the tide turns in about half an hour. Yeah, that's, that's correct. But we, uh, I live a Cape Cod kind of life, and steam clams are one of the things that we eat on a regular basis this time of year. And we harvest our own. You harvest what? And we harvest our own. Oh, you harvest uh, my, your own. I, instead of, I, I don't harvest my clams and my seafood from the fish market. I tend to harvest it directly from the ocean. That's a little more backbreaking, I think. It is. It is. But it also keeps me in shape. It's good. It's what we call the Cape Cod gym. There you go. Well, I have to have fried clams at least once a month. I don't think it's a summer food. It's a necess- necessary food in my book. Absolutely. And Absolutely. now with all these new oysters getting interesting. I've started eating oysters, too, just because there's so, there's so many different kind of oyster farms, especially around the Cape. It's remarkable. Yeah, we're actually, we have, um, and we have these hybrid, and um, we're starting to get them where, some, where the town of Barnstable, where I live, is um, they actually have, they have town grants that are just for the citizens, and uh, plus, beside the, the, the farming that goes on, but they also then bring in some that are half-raised in other places, and then, are, then they finish them in local water so that they get some um, local water flavor to them. Yeah, because the Wiano oysters taste very different from the Katuit Bay oysters, and yet they're like adjacent harbors. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so it's really different. different. Like I said, I, I can tell the difference between like a, a Barnstable oyster and a Wellfleet oyster. Pretty, they're pretty significantly different tasting. Both good, but um, you definitely get the, that nuance. And it's I'm just grateful that I get. That that's the level that we get to um, to sort of enjoy here in the Cape. That we can tell the difference between our local oysters. Now the seawater tastes the same. So why do the oysters taste different? Um, 
I think it's actually what's in the seawater. I think, you know, different places have different nutrients and different water quality, oh, and I think cool. that, that that affects it. Yeah, there you go. Um, so uh, you and I have been have met before at meetings of the um, uh, New England uh, Fisheries Management Council, and uh, herring is a topic of much interest with the council. In fact, the Ocean River Institute, along with fishermen, a fishermen and a commercial fisherman, uh, on a boat operator, are, the three of us are suing the council and the National Marine Fisheries Council over how poorly they have managed the herring. And if we win, the judge will then tell the council to do it right and better manage the herring catches and better address the bycatch issues. So if listeners want to know more specifics about that activity of the Ocean River Institute, you know, you can take a look at our website at oceanriver.org. Um, Patrick, can you fill us in a bit about what's going on with Amendment 5 and what is coming up for herring and herring fishermen this fall? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Um, so, okay, I, and I guess I'll start at the beginning and try and give this, this quick hit history of, um, I got involved in the subject 13 years ago, um, going to fisheries management meetings representing the Massachusetts Striped Bass Association and, and a few other um, recreational fishing communities, um, community organizations. And uh, many of our parents remember that in the 70s we had Russian and Irish industrial fishing operations off the coast of New England that, um, that were doing da- enough damage that the United States Congress intervened and created what were basically they created the 200-mile federal limit and they kicked these foreign fleets off of our waters because in the, the the real the technical um, information behind that is what they did is those industrial fleets collapsed sea herring um, and in the midst of it um, in the midst of the sea herring or the Atlantic herring story is that river herring become a victim because the river herring school and migrate with them when they're at, when they're at sea. Um, so river herring direct health is directly tied to the sea herring fishery. Well, through a series of American business basically doing what it does, because we have an efficient capitalist society that for the most part is a good thing, but um, but does find a way to get through everything. Um, a lot of those foreign boats ended up being American flagged under American corporations, and um, and they're back. Quite frankly, some oh of the exact same Oh, my gosh. Vessels. So Madison and Stevens kicked them out, and then they came back under American flags, you're saying. In the, in the, in the, in the mid-1990s, um, the New England Fishery Management Council, the states that are all represented at it, the federal government, we had rebuilt the Atlantic herring population to the point that it was very vibrant and very healthy, or at least it was believed by the scientists at the time, and they wanted to encourage herring fishing as opposed to the what I would call the traditional New England kinds of fishing, purse sailing, weirs, which I know we're going to hear more about later in, in, the, in, in this program today. Um, the traditional New England fisherman um, is one way to harvest herring, and then there's the industrial fishing operations um, that are a lot more efficient but provide a very different kind of commercial fishing um, and fishermen. The, um, a lot of us saw this coming. A lot of us saw these big boats, because when 250-foot trawlers pull in next to your traditional New England fishermen, you know that there's a difference. Mm. And they tow nets that are as, 
that are as long as a football field. They are literally 300 to 400 and some of them even 500 feet long. And they're 40 to 60 feet tall at the opening. Um, these nets are very indiscriminate. They're towed very fast. And just by volume, everything that ends up in these nets dies. And um, it's not like purse seining, where if you make a mistake when you're purse seining and you come up with a net full of river herring, well, you can sample what's in that. And, yeah, there's always some death. There's always some bycatch. But you can release the purse, and you can, you can sort of sustainably sample what you've caught. Um, these industrial fishing trawlers kill everything, and uh, they just dump the, what they don't want over the side um, legally. Um, a group of us found ourselves regularly running into each other at meetings fighting this fight. Um, environment, the environmental community, the commercial fishing community, especially the traditional or smaller boat commercial fishing community, and the recreational fishing community all had advocates that would be at some of these meetings. And at a certain point in time, even though on some things, you know, myself and some of the recreational fishing community members have different opinions on some fisheries um, issues than, say, the environmental community or even the commercial fishing community. And so we're frequently battling over different issues. Well, in this particular issue, everybody involved with fisheries on the East Coast or all the big true stakeholder groups saw that this was a problem. And um, 13 or 14 years ago in a bar room in Portland, Maine, after one of these meetings, a bunch of us decided that we had better do something together. And on this one issue, let's get together and mount a big fight against a multi, against the corporate world, because that's really what it is. This is corporate money. This is huge. I mean, we send four advocates. They send eight lawyers. Yeah. Um, and we formed what was called the Coalition for Herring's Orderly, Informed, and Responsible Management, which is a really difficult, long name, but the acronym is called CHOIR, because we're singing the same song, and we're a bunch of people that don't always agree they're singing the same song, and we're trying to get the United States government to sort of see that, hey, when even forces that oppose each other are telling you that there's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous practice happening in our ocean, um, you know, everything eats herring, and these boats um, make the herring disappear. Um, what we've seen is that a month ago, now this, is, this started 13 years ago, um, that we began this sort of battle to at least cut back or at least... Um, get a real picture of what this, what this fleet is doing, because it happens, for the most part, well offshore, um, for the most part. And every time there's a good look at what's caught in these nets by an independent source, we get troubling data. Last year, under great political pressure, because our ground fish fleets are having a lot of trouble, because um, there's a realignment of the ground fish fleet, which completely different issue, and I don't want to get into that. But as a part of that, um, Haddock, they had to give the industrial herring fleet another 5 million pounds of Haddock to catch, kill, and dump over the side just to be able to continue fishing for Atlantic herring because Haddock are coming back, and they're mixing in with the herring, and um, we're wasting more fish. And that was a battle we lost, the Political forces that are trying to save the ground fish fleet um, got involved in this battle, um, which we don't necessarily understand, because why would you 
kill more ground fish to protect the herring fleet when the ground fish people really need to be able to harvest more haddock. Um, we were a little bit confused by that, but politics... Do you think the midwater wind. trawlers are, are towing on the bottom instead of where they should be? Well, at a, we had a... In, this, in the current version, and what brought us sort of here today is the New England Fishery Management Council, which regulates the Atlantic herring fleet, is developing a rule. Um, rulemakings take a long time. For at least four years now, we've been on what's called Amendment 5 to the Atlantic Herring Plan. And this is the amendment that is supposed to, one, improve monitoring of the fleet so that we can really get an idea of what they're catching and what they're harvesting and what they're catching but not bringing to shore because of regulatory, you know, they're not allowed to bring other kinds of fish that they kill to shore, so they end up having to dump them dead, but we don't always know how much. Um, and river herring is one of those species. It's also, obviously, if you lay a river herring and a sea herring together, an expert might know the difference, but most people can't tell. And when you mix up 100,000 river herring in a tow of 500,000 or in a, in a boat foot with 500,000 pounds of sea herring, all being small silver fish, you can't, a lot of times the river herring gets missed um, to the point now that over $10 million in the state of Massachusetts, over $100 million on the East Coast has been put into dam removal and the building of fish ladders and habitat improvement. As in the last 20 years, the quality of river herring habitat has been very, very much improved. And up until four years ago, the numbers of river herring continued to decline, and actually this year we just had a decline. After a couple of percentage points of comeback over the last couple of years, they just took another another down year. The only source of human mortality is at-sea bycatch by industrial fishing. Um, Patrick, I have to interrupt. This is very alarming. We're going to take a short break and be back with more with Patrick Paquette. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. Let me 
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about herring, both the Atlantic herring and the river herring. Both are in trouble from uh, the fishing impact and death by bycatch. Uh, My guests, Patrick Paquette of Mass Striped Bass Fishermen and Matt McKenzie, historian and author of Clearing the Coastline, uh, we're talking about groups coming together. And Patrick earlier told us about the Choir Coalition coming together uh, some years ago. And now, uh, more recently, or out of the Choir Coalition, came the the Herring Alliance. And you can learn more about herringalliance.org. And uh, please, you know, go to the webpage, sign up for e-alerts, and and partake in the uh, campaigns that they are running. And the particular one is this Amendment 5 that's coming up for public comment uh, for the New England Fisheries Management Council. Right, Patrick? Absolutely. I mean, so where we are in the process today of, of moving Amendment 5, Amendment 5, which is going to hopefully have some river herring protection um, measures in it, it's going to have, which is probably the most and overall important part of Amendment 5, though it's all important, um, is a, a true monitoring program. Um, what our asks or what, we're, what we sort of advise the public and hope that the public will support is that we want one. We want a hundred percent monitoring on the midwater on the Atlantic Herring Fleet on the big boats in the Atlantic Herring Fleet. Um, the fleet would like to water down the message and try and say that a thirty-five foot tuna boat who goes out and uses a small gill net to go get enough mu- enough bait to go tuna fishing should have to face the same regulations as a three hundred is a two hundred and sixty-five foot midwater trawler. Um, that catches a million pounds at a time. Well, to most of us, that doesn't pass the common sense test. Um, unfortunately, when you filter anything through a lawyer's mouth and the lawyer's being paid by your big business, um, that can make some headaches. Um, but we are we're demanding 100% monitoring on these boats. We're demanding that in some way, shape, or form, the process of dumping, or in other words, what what is allowed now is they can bring a bag full of fish or a net full of fish up to the side of the boat. And at any point in time, they can say, you know something, we're not going to harvest these fish, and they can release the bag underwater and basically dump the fish outside of a federal observer's eye. So even if, even when, like right now we get about 15% of the trips have a, and have a, and it depends on months and, and dates, so that percentage changes, but even when there's a fed, the rare federal observer on a boat, they can literally underwater empty the net. So if they start pumping and they find, oh, we're catching river herring, we don't want the observer to see river herring, or we're catching haddock, we don't want them to see haddock. Or sonar tells me that there's a large animal inside this net, and obviously a violation of the Marine Mammal Protection Act would be a serious offense for one of these. Well, we can just release the net open the net underwater, and then everything sort of floats away unseen and unmonitored. Well, we believe that Amendment 5 must must have 100% monitoring provisions, 
to to prevent the process of dumping or the the practice of dumping from um, in, in in concealing what has been caught in the nets from observers' eyes and uh, some river herring protection and some ground fish protection because as we have our traditional ground fish fleet going through a transformation to bring sustainability back to a fleet that was allowed to get too large, um, trying to get some reality. People are getting hurt in the realignment to the ground fish fleet, and as necessary as that may be, um, it's still unfortunate, and it's an absolute sin against nature and against American business to be dumping haddock dead over the side of a midwater trawler when there are businesses that could be harvesting haddock that aren't allowed to at certain times of the year. So it's sort of, Amendment 5 has some really key points. Um, it's gonna, there's two big dates coming. What, as I refer it is, the Super Bowl is coming for the, for the battle against, um, against the in, industrial Atlantic Herring Fleet. And the first two quarters of that Super Bowl, or what I'll say is the first round of it comes up in September. The New England Fishery Management Council is going to have a meeting in September. Uh, we don't know exactly which date, or which which the exact day is on there, but it's coming up on on the Herring Alliance is going to be the minute we have the exact date that week. Uh, we'll be broadcasting it, but on Herring Day, they are going to hopefully vote out the final document to go out to public comment, so that we, the commi- the fishing community, and the general public get to tell them once again what we want. And, and what we prefer of they're going to give us a bunch of options and we're going to get to say hey we like we want 100% monitoring we don't want 50% monitoring we want 100% monitoring and we want the industry to pay for it if the government doesn't have the money to do so um, they can pay for their advocates and their lawyers the ground fish fleet has to pay for their monitoring the recreational fishing community if you want to go fishing now on the east coast you have to buy a fishing license and that is to pay for the data collection so that we know what we're catching as a fishing community, we think that the biggest, most well-financed industrial fleet can pay for their own monitoring as well. Fair is fair. Um, and uh, absolutely, when they're doing the damage to all the work by the watershed groups to help river herring, absolutely doing the damage to people who care about marine mammals, uh, our halibut, other fish. I mean, there's a lot of interest groups that are very concerned about seeing Amendment Five be uh, upheld and put through. Absolutely, and there's so it's going to go out to so there's going to be this push because I'm sure that the industrial lobbyists are going to try and attack it and weaken it before it goes out to public process to for public comment. So, <laughs> excuse me, there will be a this round this this very important meeting coming up in September, um, and then the big meeting um, after all the public comment. The public comment period begins in, begins when they voted out. Uh, out of the process to go to public hearings. There will be hearings that we must overwhelm. There is no difference. We must overwhelm these hearings. We must get everybody to make public comment and to, to, to take advantage of their American right to participate in democracy and tell the government what we want for this fishery. And then in, and then in January will be the big meeting when the council actually makes the final decisions in those meetings, we have to have those meetings as well, like flooded out the door. And it's hard because, you know something, I worry about the quality of, you know, what's going on in my neighborhood is a lot easier for me to get upset about and get passionate about than what's going on in the ocean that I can't always see. I don't like it 
in the spring when I don't get to see the river herring come into the river or when the striped bass stay in deeper water and the shore fishing goes in the toilet because we have no bait along shore because river herring are depleted, um, which is sort of what got us into this fight was the shore fishing was dropping off. Um, the tuna guys, the tuna fleet, the right, which is another primarily rod and reel fleet, and you know, and some harpooners, a lot of traditional kinds of gear type. We were talking at the break. This yep. battle is really about what we want our commercial fishing to look like. Do we want 265 foot boats with basically sweatshop type plants in New Bedford and Gloucester? These are not the traditional New England fishermen that we all, I think envision. This is big boat versus small boat. This is, I'd rather have a purse saner that's got five guys making $80,000 or $70,000, you know, that, that financial class, that is what puts a family in my community to work. That is what makes another person in my community able to con- contribute to the overall economy. You know, minimum wage jobs are what I, very sarcastically, but to make a dramatic point, what I call sweatshop type of jobs um, is what this fleet does. That's not the kind of commercial fishing that I want in my neighborhood. I want, you know, the hardest working New England traditional commercial fishermen. That's who we want. That's who we envision. I think that's what we all want for our community here in New England. And um, and I know that many of my friends in the Mid-Atlantic feel the same, but I don't, I don't speak for them because it's not where I'm based. I'm based here. And I know that, you know, there is a battle going on, and this really is about big boats and small boats. The other one is, is that when the industrial fleet makes a mistake, um, it tend to be mistakes that are not necessarily repairable. Um, when, when, a, when a midwater trawler, well, I'll give you a, a, a quick piece of data. The largest bycatch of river herring in one tow one toe of one net in 2007 was 260,392 260, fish. Yikes. 2007, the largest single one. A quarter in, million fish in one toe. Yes. 260, well, it was 260,000 fish um, in, that, in that one toe. In 2008, hmm. The Lamprey River in New Hampshire only brought, returned 36,000 fish. The Androscoggin River in Maine only returned 92,000 fish. The Mayanus River in Connecticut only returned 94,000 fish. The Nonquit River in Rhode Island only returned 225,000 fish. So there's five major herring runs in the New England states that that one bycatch event could have taken out completely. And that's one of the reasons that this kind of fishing, I believe that midwater trawl gear is incompatible with the complex fisheries that we have on the East Coast. I don't believe it deserves to be in our water, but, but these businesses have been allowed here. They have spent millions of dollars. Truth of the matter is, at this point in time, it's politically not realistic to say that we can ban this kind of fishing but what we have to do is regulate it to the point that their mistakes are few and far between. We have to know exactly what's going on, and the only way to do it is to have these strict regulations of 100% monitoring that the industry pays for it if the government doesn't have the money. 
um, and they can afford it well. Um, Patrick, they, you're know, running we out of time, have, and you've got the tide to catch. A um, couple words of closing. Um, the thing is, exercise. I, I'd say to the public that pay attention to the Herring Alliance website. Pay attention to honestbycatch.com, which is another one of, and it's another one that I'm involved in. Um, we have Facebook page. Like them on your Facebook page. You know, hook them up on Twitter. I'm not a tweeter person, but I know that we have Twitter accounts. I'm, I we do a Facebook. I do it. I am involved in some of the Facebook page stuff. Um, make yourself aware so that when the time comes in September, you know it's coming, and then respond to the call for action, and then use your own words. Um, regulators don't necessarily like form letters, but government officials really do pay attention to people. If you're moved enough to write a letter or send your own email, you tend to be moved enough to vote, and that's the way they look at it. And um, you know, we get we we have we have the opportunity to choose what our commercial fishery is going to look like. We get to shape our community in this vote, at least a part of our society. And it's one of them things that, as my father used to say, and he used it stronger language, but he used to say, "Don't complain if you don't vote." This is our opportunity to vote and say what's going on with at least this one particular issue on our coastline. So please, and you know, make your feelings heard. Yeah, speak up. Patrick Paquette, thank you very much. And thank you very much, Rob. Um, I apologize I couldn't stay for the whole show, but as I said, I have, I have guests in here, and feeding them fresh steamed clams is a priority when they came all the way up from Virginia, and uh, we're going to go get some clams before the hurricane hits. I envy you. Uh, happy clams to you all. Absolutely. Thank you very much. We'll be back after this break with Matt McKenzie. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. green. 
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're talking about the state of river herring and Atlantic herring in the Gulf of Maine and the northeast and northwest Atlantic Ocean, um, and they are in terrible straits. Uh, we just heard about a single bycatch being more than the number of river herring that enter some of the, the larger runs into the rivers of New England. And if you want to keep informed, um, Patrick Paquette was inviting us to... Uh, go to the website uh, herringalliance.org and sign up for their e-alerts. Um, you can also go to our website, theoceanriver.org. Uh, we're members of the Herring Alliance, so there's two different kind of e-alerts you can get to hear about stuff happening. And also Facebook, uh, particularly the um, Herring Alliance Facebook for a, uh, page. You should friend that, and you'll see... Um, some uh, dialogue from Patrick and others who are uh, moving to uh, address this situation with an amendment that the New England Fisheries Management Council is putting through this fall. It's been years in coming, and now is the time for an outpouring of public comment saying we need better management, more complete observation, better regulation, particularly of these large midwater trawling boats um, for the herring. So we've been talking about herring today. Let's talk about herring yesterday. Uh, Matt McKenzie is a professor at the University of Connecticut at uh, Avery Point. And uh, hi, Matt. How are you doing? <laughs> so um, I lost my notes here. Let's see. Um, well, so tell us about um, the history of, of uh the transformations that you've seen um, on Cape Cod. Well, herring um, have arguably uh, played as important a role in uh, people's settlement of Cape Cod as codfish themselves, after which the Cape is named. Um, Native Americans figured out early on that in order to, to have any sort of secure life on the Cape, uh, they needed to use somehow the abundant resources uh, in the coastal waters to augment the, the pretty weak and thin soils that Cape Cod has. Um, and one of the most abundant resources that the Cape had were these annual spring runs of river herring that, uh, that uh, Patrick had been talk- was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, they came at a really great time of year uh, in late spring, uh, excuse me, late winter and early spring. Uh, they ran up almost every single little uh, stream and creek and river had a herring run um, from coast of Maine on down to you know, some people, you know, at least as far as New York and a lot further south into the Chesapeake as well. And they're incredibly easy to catch. And uh, because of that, Native Americans were able to build relatively sophisticated societies um, you know, in this area, even without uh, the domestication of corn. And then Europeans later on were able to find some assurance that they would have something to eat come spring and something to fertilize their fields with come spring, uh, a 
trick that they learned from native uh, native peoples uh, early on. Um, because they were so easy to catch and so abundant, they also came under local regulation very quickly as early as the 1630s. Uh, river herring were regulated by towns uh, that were interested in making sure that no one person got more than an equal share uh, of, a, of a, an annual catch, and also to make sure that the catch, the run itself, wasn't over-harvested. Uh, and this is something that is remarkable, that in the 17th century, you have towns consciously concerned about making sure that the long-term viability of the herring run uh, was protected when they were taking fish out. Uh, and it was because, uh, again, on Cape Cod's weak, thin soils, those herring provided a valuable staple, without which uh, any sort of agricultural life wasn't going to be nearly as stable or, or as bountiful as, as it could have been. Well, Matt, let me interrupt and, and yeah. add that we've had a number of fish experts on past programs of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, and they've all spoken to the important role that migratory fish play to transport not only carbon but nutrients that are only found in the ocean up to the uplands, you know, into the, the health of the forest, it turns out, mm-hmm. is dependent on this transport of uh, minerals and, and, um, and carbon, but particularly minerals and things. Uh, so, you know, it may be that some of the uh, lessening of the, of the natural conditions of the soils of Cape Cod w- were affected when herring stopped reaching those areas. Well, possibly. Um, I'm not a soil expert, so I can't really no. get to that. No. Um, what would make herring uh, particularly important to a southern New England uh, ecosystem is that they feed at lower levels of, of uh, the trophic web, marine ecologists call it, and smaller, simpler organisms, uh, alewives, for example, which is a species of river herring, uh, feed on plankton and small crabs. Um, blueback herring do the same thing. Menhaden, which are related, uh, they're not the same species, but they're related and have a different behavior. But all of those fish feed on zooplankton, phytoplankton, uh, small crabs, and turn that into organic matter, which then becomes food for larger food fish. And when Patrick was talking about how um, a lot of these larger commercial fisheries, inshore commercial fisheries, were suffering with the loss of river herring offshore, uh, that echoed complaints of Cape Cod fishermen in the 1870s. That these guys mm. knew that without small fish like river herring and menhaden, uh, the larger commercial fish that they wanted and that people wanted to eat weren't going to come inshore. And we have historical data to suggest that that was actually happening in localized fashion uh, in the 1870s and 80s. Um, when that did start to happen, the interesting thing for Cape Cod was that that undermined a lot of the local economy. Um, before the 1870s, uh, Cape Cod was defined largely by its maritime communities, uh, not only uh, merchant shipping, but also especially by fishing and inshore fishing uh, in particular. Uh, once weirs started to proliferate along Cape Cod shores following the Civil War, and as they started taking more and more river herring, um, those inshore fisheries started to fail. And as weir fishing expanded, the ability of inshore fishermen to, to make a living declined. And by between 1860 and 1890, Cape Cod lost about one-third of its population, according to U.S. Census figures from that period. Um, and that m- mimics almost exactly um, historical data that 
illustrate declining catches on one hand, uh, and that is strongly suggested of declining local stocks of these important inshore fish. And so here we have a situation where local populations of fish and local populations of fishermen and their families and their communities are intimately related far more tightly than I think anyone at the time or even now recognized. So when Patrick tells us to pay attention, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with him more. We need to pay attention. Well, Thoreau seemed to chronicle some of that transformation that was happening when he visited Cape. Yeah, Thoreau came to Cape Cod at a very interesting moment. Um, when, by the time Thoreau, he took three trips to Cape Cod in the 1850s and early 1860s, I believe. Um, and he saw a Cape Cod that was filled with thriving, uh, prosperous uh, coastal communities. Um, there were a number, large numbers of uh, fishermen's families, large numbers of fishermen. Um, and these fishermen were both offshore fishermen going off to the Grand Banks and uh, the Scotian Shelf and places like that, and the, you know, what we think of as the New England fishing schooner. But a lot of them were also inshore fishing, uh, inshore guys that were working inshore waters. Um, Thoreau came to Cape Cod uh, with a bunch of preconceived notions about what it was like to live on the shore, uh, and in his travels, he he, he realized that life on shore was far more precarious than than he recognized. That that the Cape's environment was far more delicate, and life there was far more tenuous than I think. He, coming from a relatively, albeit weakening, farming community of Concord, Massachusetts at the time, had, had anticipated. And by the time he finishes his trips, or at least by the time the book that his sister Sophie Thoreau and his uh, literary executor, uh, William Ellery Channing, uh, assembled posthumously, Cape Cod, his book Cape Cod was uh, posthumously published, uh, they, they had Thoreau's writings come to a conclusion that was more appreciative of the inshore fishermen uh, and more appreciative of the working people of Cape Cod and the working communities of Cape Cod who relied upon these herring still, even in the 1850s. Mm. But that vibrancy was, was existing on borrowed time, unfortunately. And at the same time as Thoreau comes to realize and appreciate these fishing communities, uh, Cape Cod towns had stopped really paying attention to effectively managing and regulating uh, herring runs um, they had allowed a lot of artificial runs to be created. They allowed uh, natural runs to be over-exploited. Uh, they, they leased them out to, um, to private companies who had no long-term interest in maintaining uh, stocks. Um, and they allowed weir fishing to expand uh, markedly, uh, certainly after the, after the Civil War. And all those f sources of predation upon uh, river herring ultimately led to the uh, declining uh, stocks of inshore commercial fish and, as I said before, um, fishing communities uh, 30 years later. So, so Thoreau captures this, this interesting transitional moment where just before things really start to go haywire. Excellent. We're going to take a short break and be back with Matt McKenzie. <laughs> We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All together now. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Matthew McKenzie, author of Clearing the Coastline, the 19th Century Ecological and Cultural Transformations of Cape Cod. And you were telling us about uh, how the public learned about issues of fish and the Cape through Thoreau's writing, which were kind of rigged. And then, um, but there was this tendency to, uh, to romanticize, I guess, uh, the, what these off-Cape people were finding. That's absolutely correct. Um, you know, the, the Civil War really uh, left a, a very long uh, pall over American culture, and many people in the aftermath of the Civil War and, and the apocalypse that that represented wanted to reconnect with a, with a pristine nature, a nature that they felt was untainted by human folly and greed and, and politics. And a lot of folks went out west. Uh, a lot of folks went to the mountains, uh, as they had done before. Um, but Cape Cod represented an area that hadn't been really toured heavily before by, by tourists and vacationers. And hmm. as um, a middle class with means sufficient to uh, afford a summer vacation grew in, after the Civil War, especially after the 1870s, um, more and more people started to come to Cape Cod. Uh, especially as the property prices there were declining dramatically as fishing families were moving away or forced off because there was no fish left to catch. Initially, the middle-class vacationers' desires to reconnect with nature included images of small fishermen. Um, a few paintings of Cape Cod in southern New England uh, in the 1870s that show these scenes have of the occasional fisherman or the occasional fishing boat in them. Uh, the, uh, the literary and, and tourist promotional literature uh, of, that re- of this region uh, also had mentioned fishermen 
rather pointedly. But by the late 1880s and early 1890s, uh, people weren't interested in seeing fishermen as part of the landscape anymore. They wanted to see pristine nature. And what you see happening is a, a, a conscious decision to exclude Cape Cod's fishing past and exclude the Cape Cod fishing present from these representations of Cape Cod in specific, but, but southern New England more generally. And a good example of that is a painting by Thomas Worthington Whitridge of Second Beach at, uh, at Newport. Uh, he did this painting uh, between 1878 and 1880, and it shows a, a very distinctive uh, rock formation uh, uh, that you can see from the beach called Hanging Rock, and anyone who's been to Newport probably knows what I'm talking about. Uh, it's a very distinctive rock feature and very clear and unmistakable. And in front of that rock formation, there's this beautiful, broad, empty, seemingly pristine beach. Uh, it's clearly the summertime. Uh, there's green leaves on the trees, et cetera, et cetera. And people are walking their dogs and that sort of thing along the beach, much as we use beaches today. At, in the same year, the Rhode Island Fish Commission published a map of all stationary shore fishing operations lining Rhode Island shores. And in that, in that map, published in their Fish Commission report, uh, there should have been a weir or a fish trap smack dab in the middle of that canvas. And Whitridge, for whatever reason, probably because his clients weren't interested in seeing that, chose to exclude that. Now, we all know that landscape artists weren't documenting. They were representing. And so they took significant artistic license in choosing to include or exclude from their canvases that which they, they deemed appropriate. Um, the point that I think is important here is that Whitridge, and along with many other artists at the time, uh, whether they be graphic artists or, or literary artists, uh, consciously chose to omit fishermen and consciously chose to remove all, any form of fishing from their representations of coastal New England, uh, coastal southern New England. Northern New England's a little bit different. What that did in effect was a race from public view, the ecological and social transformations that were going on at the same time. So fishermen being forced off the Cape um, and forced to sell their, their homesteads for pennies on the dollar, um, no, no image of them. Um, fishing operations, by you know, 1890, there were, I think, one trap every third of a mile along the inner arm of Cape Cod, where Thoreau had once walked to find solitude. Um, no representations of those. There was a, this, a, a collective whitewashing, if you will, of, yes. of the, the fact that we are making an impact on these coasts and that this impact is not positive. It is not, these communities are not thriving, but there's something fundamentally wrong going on. These artists just simply omitted it, and they didn't, tourists didn't want to see it, they didn't want to buy it, and they didn't show up. And in doing so, these folks were able to create this, this vision that remains today of Cape Cod as a pristine coastline. Well, it's anything but. I mean, we've, we've created that empty coastline, and it's a coastline that had once been populated by, by fishing communities, whether they're Native American or European um, in, in origin, uh, but were removed by 1900 or so. And uh, in their place came people who wanted to perpetuate this myth of Cape Cod pristinity. So um, how do we, so there's this ignorance that, that people don't understand the need for protecting the lives of fishermen and 
restoring fishing there on the Cape? Well, I think, I, I, yes, um, I, I think what you see happening is nothing short of a sea change, if you'll pardon the term, in how uh, fisheries are managed and how people perceive fisheries. Um, a, not too long ago, it, the view was fishermen versus the fish, and, and that didn't get us very far. Uh, it, it, it ignored the fact that, that many fishermen, Patrick, for example, and, and a lot of the, the guys work in smaller boats who don't have the access to the capital that these larger fleets have, take their stewardship role very seriously because um, they know that if they take too much, they're cutting their own throats in the long run. This, is, this consciousness has been present in Cape Cod fisheries and I would say New England fisheries and perhaps uh, small fisheries all over the world since time began. Fishermen, small fishermen, recognize that their future is predicated upon the health of the ecosystem on which they rely. And, and Patrick's work represents a more uh, a modern manifestation of that. Um, but there's a larger question involved here, and that's how do the rest of us get involved? Because clearly, fishermen are doing our bidding. They're taking the, the seafood that we like to eat. They're taking um, the commodities that we like to eat uh, or that go into the goods and services that we enjoy. Yeah. And blaming fishermen for you know, taking too many fish, well, that's not exactly correct. We need to be very aware of our role um, as a society writ large as stewards of these marine resources. Uh, and in many ways, uh, small fishermen on Cape Cod and New England might be miners' canaries in some degree. That If they can't make it anymore, that means that there are larger problems at stake, um, and we need to be much more active in, in regulating and protecting and, and conserving these stocks as we go forward. Absolutely. And speaking of stewards of marine resources, uh, you and Patrick had an exchange about the work of Ernie Eldridge. Yes, yeah. I had the pleasure of working uh, Ernie Eldridge's weirs um, this summer. Uh, Ernie's family has been operating weirs out of Chatham for generations. And the weir is, is, a, is a, it's a, it's an ancient technology. Native Americans used it here for thousands of years. Um, there are records of weirs being used in Europe for thousands of years. Uh, the technology was not unique to one area. And it is a traditional form of fishing on Cape Cod. Um, what makes those operations distinctive is that they, uh, they're set up every spring in very shallow waters. Um, about 30 feet or so, the 10-meter isobath is pretty much where they, sit, where they situate them. Uh, they're stationary, so they catch everything that, come, that swims along the shore. Um, in the past, that led to problems. When you've got 145 weirs lining Cape Cod, as you had in 1912, clearly they were taking uh, a lot of fish, a lot more fish, than perhaps the ecosystem could sustain. We're not certain about that. But what an individual weir promises, uh, and what Ernie's operations promise, and he only operates three weirs, and I think there's only four weir family, weir, oper weir fishing families left operating on Cape Cod, so the numbers of weirs being used now are nothing compared to what they used to be, that these stationary gear allow for live culling of the catch. And uh, this summer, Ernie and I, uh, one of, I think his brother and a colleague of mine went out, and the four of us culled each net. And everything that we didn't want, um, we tossed back into the water. And it was annoyed, but the fish were alive and healthy 
and would live to spawn and reproduce and do what fish do. Um, so you almost remove entirely the problem of bycatch that Patrick was talking about. Um, the other thing that weirs allow is they remove almost entirely the problem of ghost gear, uh, gill nets that have been that get lost offshore and that continue to kill fish, um, even though human beings aren't tending them anymore. Um, you know, right. Two reasons, Matt. We're out of time, but I want to thank you for oh, taking welcome. the time. Tell us. No, my pleasure, and um, thank you for the opportunity to, t- to talk about herring today. And if and the name of your book is Clearing the Coastlines. The 19th Century Ecological and Cultural Transformation of Cape Cod. I highly recommend it. It's in paperback. Um, if you want to get into the ocean again, this is one good way to do it. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Uh, until next time, thanks for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogue. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.